Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. Well, between our singing with the band led by Colin, uh, between Jenny's reading and Scott's prayer, this sermon has pretty much already been preached. But I, uh, I got some time to kill before the Niners game starts, so I figured we'd do it anyway. Sound good? Oh, Colin hadn't dismissed anybody yet. I just started in too soon. The kids already know what they're supposed to do, but if you are in our youth group, you can head to the back and find Jeremiah there as well. So our kids and youth can be dismissed to their uh, learning environments. And this morning we are looking at 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up there uh, so that we can all be on the same page. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, by the way, uh, that's not a problem. Stick around. We'll get you good and familiar with it. Uh, But in the meantime, you can find your way to 1 John by looking at the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. You just got to know that you're looking at 1 John and not the Gospel of John. So you're looking for a book that has the number one and then John following it. And since we have been in this study for 14 weeks, we've made it almost all the way to the end of this letter. Uh, In fact, why don't we start by just taking some time to kind of locate what we've been doing in our year, in our study, uh, not just in John, but from the very beginning. Uh, I think this is important to do because what a church preaches, what it teaches, is the central vehicle for discipleship in a church. Uh, It is where our leadership and our mission are renewed and uh, cast from here, from the pulpit, so to speak. And so the central activity of the people of God gathering together and pouring over his word, let's think about what we've done this year. Uh, Well, our theme has been seeking out to understand how we glorify God by pursuing his mission of making and maturing disciples for Jesus here in Tucson. And since we often say that this is not just the theme of the year, but the mission of the church, the very reason why Journey exists— that might seem like it doesn't necessarily bear saying, but it's, it was clear to us, uh, to Jim, to myself, to the elders, as we thought about this coming year, uh, that it would be good to focus on our mission, our reason for existence, in a distilled and clear fashion, thinking about how we can push forward the mission through various teachings. And so we took some time at the beginning of the year to focus on the Great Commission, to think about what it means to be called to make disciples of Jesus by baptizing and teaching and going and proclaiming. And from there, we noted that we might only be as good at making disciples as we are healthy as an institution, as a church. And so we turned to Revelation 2 and 3, where we find seven letters written by John, the same John who writes 1 John. Uh, but these letters are dictated by Jesus. They, they act as a sort of report card for how these churches are doing. And so we use these seven letters to create a criteria, a, a way for looking at ourselves and seeing how we are as a healthy church. And from there, after we encountered Easter, we thought about what it means to pass on the faith and to move the generation, uh, to move not only our mission out beyond our walls geographically, beyond our property geographically, but to push it down in each successive generation, to think about what it means to raise kids and to pass the torch to the next generation, to college students and high school students who long to see the mission of Jesus go forward. 
And so we thought about the book of Joshua and the successes and failures of God's people as they emerged from the wilderness to take the promised land. And at the end of Joshua, we considered several prayers of the Apostle Paul. Paul being the first missionary for Jesus. And so we wanted to look at what does he pray for these churches, for himself, for the mission as he goes out to try and create churches which will make and mature disciples of Jesus long after he has passed. And after thinking about that and, and even having a midweek prayer meeting, Jim would point out that uh, gathering to pray and gathering to pray specifically not just for our health concerns and for the everyday burdens that trouble our minds, but praying for the mission of God, we must have kicked a hoarding's nest because lo and behold, halfway through that series, uh, the roof got ripped off of this building. And so the plastic which Scott referenced uh, was hanging here for several weeks as, actually, I can still see blue through there, so we're not finished yet, but we're getting there. Hopefully it doesn't start raining. That's sturdy, right? Where's Matt? That's not going to leak on me? <laughs> oh, good. A little iffy. A little iffy. It's a sunny day, though. Uh, so after we, uh, we didn't want to let the microburst that ripped the roof off deter us or distract us, so we focused on prayer. We moved over to the other building, and since we've been back, we've been looking at the letter of First John. And so we have been 14 weeks thinking about this disciple, this apostle, this friend of Christ's, who thinks deeply about God's mission, and particularly how the love of God compels us to a life of holiness, not just for ourselves, but out beyond ourselves, for the Christian community, for the church, and ultimately for the world. And so we look at John, and we think mostly about what it means to love other believers. And personally, I just want to say uh, that I have experienced on a handful of occasions this week already varying and quite different, but similar stories in this way, that people in this church have been won back to the cause of Christ and the mission of Christ, not first and foremost by apologetic arguments or powerful preaching of the word, but by the faithful presence of God's people showing love and fidelity to God's word in the midst of everyday life in ways that they probably didn't even notice they were doing. And yet the kingdom advanced and the love of Christ went forward because unwitting to them, observers saw how they sought to embody what John talks about in these five chapters of this letter. And so that's where we have arrived. And last week, Pastor Jim helped us consider 1 John 4, 7 through 21, where he unpacked the Christian's duty to love one another and how that duty comes from God. It is a sign of our relationship with God, and it is a proof that the love of Christ through the Holy Spirit abides in us. And so in our text this morning, we build on that understanding of love. We'll pick up in some familiar territory looking at love, but there's two other important and new ideas in this letter that I want to tackle as well uh, in our time together. But before we jump too far in, let's pray. And instead of just bowing with me, I would like those of you who can do this without causing too much physical discomfort to just set your eyes on those mountains. Because moments ago, we sang that the Savior who we are going to learn about this morning could, if he so willed, move those. And if he can move those, how much more can he save any whom he desires? 
So here we go. Let's pray and set your eyes on those mountains. Father in heaven, as we look at your creation, we recognize holy indeed is your name. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. We want you to draw more people. As you can move those mountains, we believe that you can draw more people in repentance and belief, that you can reshape the sinner's hearts. And so we ask that you would reshape our hearts this morning, form them so that they mirror the heart of Christ. Would you provide for us in the ways that you provide for the plants and the animals, the wildlife, your creation on that mountain, would you provide for us too spiritually? Would you help us through trying and confusing times? And would you help us to trust your faithfulness and your unchanging and undying love? Would you convict us of sin where we need to be convicted that we might freely seek forgiveness and freely be offered forgiveness that your son, our savior, the creator of those mountains purchased for us? And would you keep us from temptation and from the spiritual enemy and even from the indwelling flesh? Lord, would you renew our hearts this morning as you renew the grass and flowers of those mountains every rainy season? We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Like I said, we are in 1 John 5, 1 through 5, and that section of our text reads, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, whoever, uh, and everyone, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? As I said, we start in familiar territory. This new chapter begins, but John is pursuing the same point. And he does so by connecting obedience to Christ's commands, love for God, and love for Christians together in a straight line so that we see that these three things are inextricable from one another. They go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other two. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here because we have thought about this theme and the interrelation of these three concepts for almost the entirety of our past 14 weeks. But since repetition is the mother of all learning, John's repetition should cause us to ask the question, why does he again and again return to this? Why does he not move on to new territory, but he feels a need to strike this nail until it is flush down? I think one reason John returns so frequently to these themes in the interrelationship between love for God, love for the brotherhood, and obedience to commands is because these are the themes of Jesus' last night with his disciples. As we think about John 13 running through 17, as John records his gospel, some themes we've already sung and we've already heard read by Jenny for us this morning— these themes are in there as Jesus spends his last night with them before he dies. He comes back again and again to our love for each other, our love for God, and our obedience to the commandments of God. In fact, I would say that in the five verses we have in front of us, those chapters, that night, 
looms large in John's imagination. And so he connects it together for us using a familial connection. He says that if we keep God's commands, we are children of God. And if we are children of God, then God loves us as his children. And if God loves us as his children, then we ought to love one another as siblings. It's worth noting that we have seen this earlier in the letter. And that if we reflected on this, and as we reflected on this teaching earlier in the letter, we noted that love can be no mere emotional feeling, no, no simple warmth towards others, but love is a force, a power which compels us toward one another. And so John, earlier in the letter, has given us our Savior Jesus as the example of love. That God's love in Christ compelled him towards us and towards his cross. Now I know if you're like me, then you might think of the sacrificial work on the cross, and you might think of the cosmic, the amazing significance of that event, and you might think, how can I find something tangible, something more realistic, something that fits better into my life in order to grab a hold of, to understand as an act of love. And I think if you do think those like me, I know so often therein lies my own failure to love. Because I want to shoehorn God's love into my life. I want to make it so that God's love fits within the busyness and the bourgeoisness of the life which I pursue and strive to lead. I want to think about it in the ways of how can I get it to, to sit comfortably next to the life of comfort and middle-class values that I have tried to maintain. And that is so often where I fail to love. Because love will always cost something. And it does not fit comfortably where we try and stick it. Now I could at this point go on about how we have to try harder, give more effort work harder in order to be more sacrificial in love towards one another, but I actually don't think that that's what John would have us do. Because if you return to that last night and how, how John thinks about it and how he writes about it in his gospel, his first thought is not, so try hard like Jesus. If you know the story, you can think back to it. I'll read some of it for us. It's contained in John 13. That's where the last evening of Jesus before he goes to his cross begins. And it says, he rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel, he tied it about his waist. And then pouring water into a basin, he began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. Now, if we, if we look at this, Peter responds, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And we see Peter's offense at Jesus, his master, undertaking such a humbling task. The role of a servant. And so Jesus has to explain to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus convinces Peter, if you are truly to follow me, then you must allow me to wash your feet. And Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. You see, the love of Christ doesn't fit cleanly into our lives. It forces us down onto our hands and knees. It forces us to take off our outer garments. And it forces us to do dirty, menial, menial and humbling tasks for one another. 
But John does not draw our attention, first and foremost, to a new application of effort in order to serve each other in this way. In fact, I submit to you guys that if we think, well, we all need to try harder, be less lame, and be more radical, we've thought wrongly about serving each other. Likewise, I think that if, if our approach is, well, I don't feel the sacrificial love inside of me, and so we start to fear that maybe we are not saved, we don't have the Holy Spirit abiding in us, I think there too we have seen that we might be thinking wrongly about Jesus' love. Rather, how does John, in chapter 13 of his gospel, how does he, earlier in that evening, direct us to understand the source of, of Christ's love. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And in verse 3, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And that's where we started reading before. Takes off his outer garment, kneels, and washes. You see, Jesus wasn't compelled to wash the disciples' feet by a great exertion of effort. He was compelled to wash the disciples' feet because he knew who he was. He knew who sent him. And he knew where he was headed. So often my failures to love, and maybe your failures too, are located here that we forget so easily our identities. We forget who we are, who has sent us, and where we're going. Colin led us in a song earlier in which we declared, heaven is our home. That line reorients the way in which we see our world and each other if we truly understand it. There's much more that could be said here, but we have spent 14 weeks essentially meditating on God's love. So I want to just simply ask you two questions. And I could answer these for you in a, in a general way, but I think in a sense, we each have to think about and reflect on these questions in order to figure out the specific answer of how Christ might be calling us to love. The questions are these. What could we do to secure knowledge of our identity that so empowered Jesus to be radically loving? The second is like it. What could we do to secure ourselves in the knowledge of who we are, who sent us, and where we are going? You see, if we can anchor those questions into our hearts and pursue the answers with whatever they look like for each one of us, because I could give you general answers, more time in scripture, more time in prayer, more time with the gathering of the saints. But each of us, our, our personal experience might say, well, I spend as much time as I have available in scripture. I think I pray well. I'm at church every Sunday, and yet we still struggle to love. So I think we, as individuals, have to reflect more deeply on these things and think about what is it that Christ would call each of us to give up? Because the cost of discipleship that we have to pay is not general. It is not a cost that we 
all share the exact same way, but the cost of discipleship is an individual thing because it's given by a father to individual children whom he knows down all the way to the core of their being. So as we think about that, we will find that each of us has a unique cost to pay, a unique way in which we might understand and answer those questions and so be able to be empowered to love more sacrificially. But let's keep looking and moving through our text. The second idea I want to consider is that as Christ, or as John, thinking about Christ's teaching, connects love of God and love for each other to keeping the commandments, he stops to make sure we understand something that I think should catch each of us a little bit off guard, and that's that Christ's commands are not burdensome. And if you know your Bible, there might be a part of you that thinks, really? Wait, what? Are you certain? I've tried this before. The Christian life certainly is hard. It certainly does require effort. When I was reading this text, preparing for the sermon, I thought about my time not too long ago when I was a high school teacher at a, at a Christian school. And I taught Bible, and one day we finished one unit, and we were headed into the next unit. Then that unit was the Sermon on the Mount. And it struck me that most of my students had probably never heard the Sermon on the Mount read from beginning to end as a cohesive whole. So I simply had each student read a paragraph as we went up and down the rows of desks in my classroom. And if you're unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount, 27 verses or 27 sentences into the sermon, you come across Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in the back row, right over here, a lovable young goofball who played running back for the Monta Vista Mustangs, I believe the name was, uh, inadvertently let an expletive of surprise escape his mouth. The other students in my class whipped around to see where it had come from and then whipped back around so fast that I thought that they were going to get collective concussion syndrome to see how I would respond. Now, there's a part of me that I was supposed to enforce the rules of said Christian school, but there's a part of me that actually was proud of this student. In the several weeks that I had gotten to know him, it was hard for him to pay attention, but if that came out of his mouth at that time, you know what it showed? He was locked into understanding what Jesus was actually teaching. Because what he got, and I don't think any of the other students sitting around him got, is that Jesus stood in the path of a postmodern sexual ethic that was common even among students whose parents shelled out $15,000 a year to send their kids to a private school where we gave them an iPad and had an equestrian program, even amongst that cohort of students. Jesus standing in the face of a postmodern sexual ethic, standing athwart and yelling, stop, caught them off guard. And they thought, wait, that seems radical, hard, burdensome. And this isn't novel to my former high school students. Jesus' own disciples encounter this. In Matthew 19, just to give you one example, Jesus is teaching on divorce, and he says to his disciples, 
Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not supposed to be so. And you want to know what his disciples thought? If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, for all of you who are married and enjoy a happy, thriving, flourishing marriage, I want you to think about that. For all of you who are single and long to be married, I want you to think about that. Because what his disciples heard was Jesus's call and intention for marriage, and their first thought was, guess we should just do away with it. Better not to get married. That sounds too hard. That sounds too burdensome. And so I think it's fair to say that in every generation, if Jesus' disciples in the Middle East in the first century and us here in America in the 21st century, if we can all look at what Jesus says at some point and think that sounds too heavy to lift and carry, then we have to reflect on what is it about Jesus' commands that are not burdensome. I actually think that that idea of lifting and carry when you hear the word burden is a helpful image. I don't know if any of you have ever helped a friend move. I don't know what it is about helping a friend move. It's always the friends with hide-a-beds in their couch. That's what I've noticed. Where you have to hold the couch, and then you're carrying it out of the moving truck to where it's supposed to be. And for no explicable reason, you just have to stand there for a really long time holding the couch. And it seems for, to somebody a bad idea to put the couch down. So you just hold it, waiting for the Lord to return. <laughs> and it gets heavier and heavier the longer you hold it. That is what it means for something to be burdensome. But when John says the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome, what he means is when you pick them up and you hold them, though they may be difficult and hard at first, what you find is as you give yourself to them, it becomes lighter. It's the opposite of the hide-a-bed couch. It becomes easier to hold and to carry. And what is it about Jesus' commands that this would be true? Well, again, I think if we return to that last night, there are teachings in Jesus' last night with his disciples that clarify that for us. We don't have time to get all the way into them because these are not my primary texts, so let me save us all the legwork, and I will just point out what I think I see in Jesus' last night. And that's two primary truths that point us to why Christ's commands are not burdensome. The first is that because Jesus gives, is that be, it is because Jesus gives them, and who is Jesus? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Second, it is because Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us as a helper that we might hold his commands. Why does Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life help us understand his commands as being non-burdensome? Well, it helps us if we understand what it means that he's the way, the truth, and the life. I think that verse is so often quoted but so little reflected on that it's helpful just to, to posit what that actually means for us. What does it mean that Jesus is the way? Well, he will tell us in John 14 that he's the way to the Father. And who is the Father? The Father is the one whom we were created to dwell with. Both in Genesis 1 and at the end of the Bible in Revelation, it tells us that the Father is to live with us, him as our, our God and us as his people. And in that state, we are supposed to experience something that the Hebrew called shalom. 
If you know one Hebrew word, I assume that's it. Shalom. What is shalom? It is peace. In fact, it is the peace and harmony you feel when in right relationship with God. It is how we are to experience life when we live with him, treating him as our God, and he sees us as his people. What does it mean that Jesus is the truth? Well, it means that he perfectly reveals the character of God. We have no mystery about who God is. It is not as blind men feeling the side of an elephant trying to put together a framework for what this thing we call God is, but rather Jesus has shown up and he has revealed to us in complete perfection the character of God. Furthermore, it's that we can know the truth about the world because Jesus is the word of God, the logos of God. When God, in the beginning, opened his mouth to declare all things into existence, preaching the first sermon that we call creation, when God opened his mouth, it was Jesus that came out. It is Jesus who fashioned the mountains. It is Jesus who knit and holds us together. And because we worship the creator God, then we can know the truth not only about God, but also about all creation. What does it mean that he is the life? Well, it means that he, unlike anybody else who has ever lived, passed from life to death, and then of his own will, took his life back up again. He took off life like it was a jacket, and when he got cold and bored after three days, he put it back on. And so he can offer us life because he is the only one who by his own power has walked out of the grave. Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life then points to the fact that his commands direct us to the manner in which we were created to live. And so they are not burdensome because this is what we were intended for. You know, when something functions the way in which it was intended for, it, the philosophical term for it is telos. That it functions in line with its purpose or its created design. And it means there's less wear and tear, less hardship and less burden. It does not mean that there is no effort. I think this is what Jesus meant in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, when calling out to a crowd, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There is a yoke, there is a burden to following Jesus, but it is light compared to the yoke and burden of following our worldly desires. When we follow our worldly desires, we're burdened because we are spiritually out of step with our Father. We do not live in line with God's commands. And we are socially burdened because if we do not understand each person is created in the image of God and we do not treat them as they ought to be treated as the image of God, then we instrumentalize everybody around us and we begin to look at others as if they are means to an end rather than an end in and of themselves. Somebody worthy of our time and attention. Prior to Jesus coming, this was the point of the Old Testament command. Simply look at the Old Testament, and you can draw a line right through the Ten Commandments and go, these ones are for us to live in harmony with God, and these ones are for us to live in harmony with each other, to live an unburdened life. Now, that doesn't mean that the commands are easy. 
nor does it mean that, they're easier than not, that it's easier to not follow them. You can think of the example of a drug addict when tempted to take their drug of choice, his or her drug of choice. It would certainly be easier to reach out and to take. Yet as soon as that's in their system, it begins to rend their body, to lead them to terrible decisions, and to splinter their social relationships. That's the burden. But Jesus wants us to know that we are not alone in this that he has sent us the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 15 through 17, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. We could take a minute and reflect on these biblical and theological ideas to figure out what they mean for us practically, because I'm worried that some might say, well, I believe that, but I still feel as if following Christ, as if keeping his commands is hard and heavy. So let me give you observations I see in this. Observation number one is simply to point out that every moral theory and ethical code struggles with falling into one of two extremes, and sometimes both, and that's license and legalism. License is what happens when there's too much space in our moral codes, and we can actually live what, what is in line with the moral code, and yet live totally immoral lives. Maybe you've seen this in news about politics, where you have a politician who does something that is not a violation of the office's ethical code, and so they cannot be removed from office, yet at the same time, you hear what they did, and you think, that's really bad. That sounds immoral. There's too much space in the moral code. It's too licentious. Legalism, on the other hand, is when we tighten the code, stricter than God himself would tighten it, stricter than the standard of holiness which God sets out for us. In many ways, the evangelical church has had a sort of reckoning on this with something that was in a previous generation referred to as purity culture. That we took the good command to be pure in heart and we ratcheted up a bunch of activities and actions associated with it. That Christ puts no burden on us to obey, but we ratcheted those things up, included them in the command to be pure in heart, and then shamed those who did not match the activities and externalities that we thought it meant to be pure. When we do this, ironically enough, we are both legalistic, making overly strict moral codes, and we tend to create a prosperity gospel where we promise people goods that God does not promise them for keeping codes he did not develop. And so each moral code struggles with license or legalism, but Jesus does not fall into this trap. He issues commands and he models a way. There are things to avoid and things to do. There are virtues and there are vices and there is a demand of holiness. Jesus does not allow us to be licentious. But his commands go no further than God's standard of holiness. And when we fall short... He stands ready with the cross in the background to offer grace and forgiveness to any who bow the knee and repent. And in so doing, he is not legalistic. Why? Because legalism is always attached to shame. But where is the shame, friends, of your sin? It is nailed to a cross. It has already been paid for 
And so there is no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. Observation number two, we may feel burdened by Jesus' commands probably because we've misunderstood how sanctification works. When somebody believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as John says in verse 1 of our passage, and uh, that they believe he's the Christ in verse 1, that he's the Son of God in verse 5, they recognize him as king and divine. And when they submit to him, the Holy Spirit lives in them and begins to transform their hearts. But the Christian life does not become intuitive right away. Rather, we go through a process of discovery in which we see our sin, are convicted of our sin, repent of our sin, and grow to hate and eventually have victory over our sin. The Holy Spirit progressively reveals this to us in a process called sanctification. But so often we misunderstand sanctification because we mislocate our sin. We put it on mere action. And so the person who struggles with pornography thinks the act of looking at pornography is the sin. The person who struggles with greed thinks the act of clinging to their money or possession is the sin. The person who struggles with being quarrelsome thinks the fight and the anger is their sin. But Jesus pushes our conception of sin deep down into our hearts. And he says, no, 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 it started well before you acted on it. Think about this. Jim preached on this verse earlier in our series, 1 John 2, 16. Reflecting on what sin is, he says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. In our hearts, in our desire, is where sin begins. And if we do not learn to repent of our desires, we will struggle, we will hinder our growth and our sanctification. And often, when we feel like we are stuck in a particular place, that is when we run to license or legalism. That is when we, rather than looking to the cross to justify our sins, simply says, and we go, no, it doesn't mean that. And we let ourselves off the hook. Or we create these codes and run to harder and harder things, worldly standards and strategies to fight our sin rather than the mere act of repentance. We need to think of our sin like pulling weeds. I know many of you have yards or houses where you're trying to maintain and the weeds come up and you go out and you work hard, you get your hands in the dirt and you pull the weed out and you know that if you don't get down to the root, what will happen? Those monsoons will roll through and the next morning they will be back again. So too, if we don't repent of our sin, we are not getting down into the root and as soon as our spiritual monsoons roll through, we will find sin crops up all over our lives. And we will run again to license or legalism. The only way to fight that is to get deep down into our hearts, to repent of sin, to repent of desire, the false desires which guide us so often and are of the world. When we fail to do so, that is when Christ's commands feel burdensome when we have unrepented of desires. And that leads us to the final observation. How can we survive when we have these desires inside of us that struggle with sin, when we feel the weight of things, and when it seems less like an easy yoke and more like a hide-a-bed couch? 
that we're holding. 1 John 5, 4-5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, it's important to recognize here, because sometimes when we see the word the world, we're supposed to think of our non-Christian family, friends, and neighbors, and co-workers. But that's not what John means here. John actually means a system in which we are all stuck as we await the coming of Christ. He means a system that is driven by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in this system, we are each being counterformed away from the way of Christ. If I could give you just one way in which we might see this system playing out in our lives, in our culture, it is very common to focus on individualism. Now, I want to say, the fact that each of us is an individual is actually a Christian truth. In most other cultures, you find your worth and value and dignity in conformity to the community. Yes, obviously we could think of that in terms of Eastern cultures, but that's true on Western college campuses as well. Conform to the thoughts of your peers and your professors, and you will find your worth and dignity. But no, the Christian gospel includes in it that we were each created as individuals. And so there's an element of individualism that is deeply Christian, but what happens in the worldly system of our culture is it turns the dial all the way to 11. And so we're no mere individuals, we are in fact expressive individuals who have been created to leverage our power, our will, and our finances in order to create and craft ourselves without any reference to natural and external authorities like our God and creator or simply our parents or even our biology. However, we as Christians must pay attention to that this is what the world is trying to do to us. In this system, in all sorts of ways, it is trying to craft us and counterform us away from what God would have us be. And so if we were to think just about individualism, I would say the antidote to that is the biblical truth that we can reflect on. That we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to God our Father and to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And as we reflect on that, we fight against the worldly system. And I know that it can be difficult. And that when we think wrongly about who we are and how we grow, it seems burdensome. But take heart, friends. For the one who is in you has already overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, and we thank you as we have sung that you are mighty to save, that you can move mountains, that you are holy. And we thank you that you have saved and called many of us to repentance. Would you help us see our sinful desires and repent of them? Would you help the Holy Spirit press into us in a kind determination to see us shaped more and more like Christ Jesus? And would our love for God work out in the keeping of his commands and the love for the community, and would that shine a light to the entire world, that we might proclaim your gospel and that people might look at us and how we love each other, and would that then turn them to give glory to you, Father, for we are your children simply trying to reflect and emulate your character and the character of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And so we pray these things in his precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.